the same way as looking at agriculture. Look at what we've done. We've, we've made everything our enemy. We've, everything's a pest or a disease or an invasive thing. And, you know, we have that. And, and we set it up for ourselves because that's the kind of competition we like to be in. We're in competition with the, with the planet. And the, uh, the, the, the beauty of something like that, though, again, is that um, real competition would mean that we are together agreeing on something, mm. which we're not. Right. We're not really. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Jack Algier, a talented organic farmer who manages the growing operations at the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture in New York's Hudson Valley. Stone Barns is a special place, not just for its beautiful farm and grounds, which are open to the public, but also for being the home of Blue Hill, an amazing restaurant run by Chef Dan Barber, who has a magical way of making vegetables to starve every dish. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm talking today with Jack Algier. Jack. Hi, Dave. Great to see you. It is great. Um, I've, I've been wandering around Stone Barns Center for the last day, and I'm just kind of blown away by what you're doing here. And the, I'd say, profound level of education that's going on has really grown since I was here years ago. I mean, it's just, you're doing so much. It's, it's very impressive. Before we talk about that, give me a little bit of history of how you came here. Um, well, I came here through the farm. I came here from, uh, originally, I grew up in Rhode Island um, on a small farm with my family and um, had worked a lot uh, through farm, uh, different farms and nurseries and things like that and ended up going to school for plant science. Um, parallel to... Uh, going to school at URI for horticulture and plant science work. I was also working biodynamic farming uh, at uh, Meadowbrook Herb Gardens with Heinz Grotten. Heinz. Oh, I didn't know that. And, and Davey worked there too. Oh, Davey yeah. Niskel. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a great teacher of his, Heinz. Well, he, he was an incredible fox. Brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, I learned so much from him that I still, in many ways, Shannon and I both worked there together. Um, and lived above the earth drying barn and uh, and really in some ways it was I can't say how valuable that was because it it was putting in this juxtaposition this kind of play between um, all of the science and technology and everything that I was learning at school largely I was going to school to try to figure out why we had ended up in this situation where everybody was like you know it's all good, but like that's how you used to farm. Your organic way is really how you used to farm. And, and you, if you want to be successful in the future, you need to follow these uh, this new set of rules that are out there in the world for, for industry. And I just have a hard time swallowing that. And I, I also have a tendency to go into that, that problem set rather than try to go around it. And 
found myself um, studying it and really working hard in the university. I worked for the botany department and redesigned the greenhouse at the botany department under Chris Narone and um, grew a lot of organic, did a lot of organic research in there. A lot of my friends from the plant science department would come and do their trials and things like that in that space. And um, Give me, give me an idea of what years you were in college. Uh, early 90s, 94, 95. So organic had, was arriving. It was, there were organic farmers around. There was an organic label. I, you know, it was like back, I, I was going to school when the orange organic sticker was around. <laughs> which was pretty early on in terms of uh, labeling that stuff. There was yeah. that orange sort of yeah. oblong sticker. Before USDA, right? Well before USDA. Yeah. Um, although there was NOFA, certainly all the NOFA chapters were around and there was a lot happening. And so it was very interesting to me, but at the same time in Rhode Island, like, you know, there was some great farms that, um, the Murners and uh, there, you know, there was a lot of organic farms that were, were happening in Rhode Island, small, but by and large, the, the farm communities were dissolving all the dairies, all the, the family farms that were in my area, Southern Rhode Island, were uh, turning into housing developments. Um, and so I, I was just so curious to know why in many ways, you know, as, as any good 18 or 19 year old, can be there you, you start to realize that you've been betrayed a little bit by the amount of information that you've received about especially about the food system but about a lot of other things in the world um and so it was an exciting moment for me i couldn't get enough i couldn't capture enough information and i had this thought in my mind that there was actually this great potential for spiritual connection ongoing at agriculture in relationship to to land and that, that being a farmer could actually be something really good for the land and for our communities and not something that was toxic for us and everybody. I mean, I was around a lot of people that, that got serious illness and died from chemical exposures. And, and um, I saw that happen. And these are the same people that knew about organic methods, but had pretty well, uh, you know, let that go for the sake of them trying to stay in business. Um, so they felt... The market just wasn't there. They couldn't make a living. They were getting pushed towards more chemical, more industrial paths. Yeah, the loyalty wasn't there. The community loyalty wasn't there to support the methodology, the, those complex things like the whole processes, the starting things from seed and growing things in the field. It just kept getting cut back to nursery style, like you, you know, limiting your product lines, limiting your uh, the enterprises that, that one small farm had. Um, but, you know, there are certainly CSAs and our, our food co-op in, in Kingston was strong and vibrant and growing still. It was a lot of people were, there was still that community, that organic community at, at its core. But I could never figure out why it was so splintered from the rest of the mainstream. Um, and also just what it was to be a farmer in that it was still like very new to me to understand like who was this farmer and uh and how could i become that in some ways you know um so we finished school and um 
Shannon and I, at, in 99, 98, 99, moved west because we, uh, at the time, Meadowbrook Herb Garden was sold and ended up um, being bought and, and turned into kind of a pumpkin patch, which is just extremely sad. At 35 years of dry farmed biodynamic herbs and you know, that that ended. And um, so we went west and the, with this kind of prospect, you know, this like, we've heard that it's happening out there and there's a lot of it. So let's go there, you know, really find, find somebody, get involved, get into the program. So we went to uh, first to Colorado um, and we found a place in Boulder to, to work at a, we went to the farmer's market and went to the best looking stand that we could see, which was Gem of the Field, Dan Mates, uh, who's still out there doing EcoCycle. Uh, we went to him and said, hey, uh, got a job? You need some help? And he said, I just lost two people yesterday. How about, you know, you jump on with us? And so we worked there in the, the foothills uh, north of Boulder for a year or so. And then I moved to California. Um, and very serendipitously looking for some stuff to do to, to get engaged. I got engaged in the Ecological Farming Association, uh, the Eco Farm, started volunteering and uh, met Kalita Todd. And um, Kalita had me work for her to help source and collect all the different products from all the organic farmers and food businesses and distributions that gave to Feed Eco Farm Conference for those five days in, at Asilomar. Um, and in those, in that moment of meeting her, I met her husband, Amigo Bob. Yeah. And Amigo um, and I became immediate friends and, you know, who deeply admired him and worked very closely with Amigo then for the next several years. Um, on the road with him, doing some consulting, helping to establish his farm in the Sierras and managing some of his... Uh, some of the olive orchards for his aeolia project, which was uh, restoring old her heritage orchards that were around the foothills of the Sierras um, and doing pressing and olive making and that sort of thing. So um, after 9-11, we decided to move back to the East Coast to be closer to our family, which was a decision mostly based on just missing our family in a moment of, of serious uh, stress, you know, um, uh, disturbance, social disturbance and that sort of thing. So we just wanted to be closer. And that was a really a hard move. It was a hard decision to leave working with Amigo because he was such a great teacher and, and such a, a, an incredible mentor and friend. And, um, but inevitably, um, our love and decision to be closer to our family moved us back. Um, we helped some old friends that we had worked with at Meadowbrook help start uh, a farm in Lyme, Connecticut that was an estate, um, Whitegate Farm, and turned that estate into a working CSA with, with their family, um, which is still running today. Wonderful, beautiful farm. We were there for a couple of years all together to try to get it up on its feet and get the CSA running and really production there. And... Um, you know, 
in that time, I, I still stayed really close. I was going back and forth to California quite a bit with the EcoFarm conference and still helping and supporting that and staying really connected with Amigo. And, um, and one day he said, you know, I was just at this event with Elliot Coleman and we were talking about this place in New York that is developing this place, this Stone Barns place by the Hudson. And, um, and we both thought, you know, you, you should be the, you should do this. This is, you're the guy for this. You really got to check this place out. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm kind of happy where I am. We've done this thing. And the community that's there is really great. And, and it's Westchester County. Like, what, what could this be? You know, I was thinking like New York City kind of, I guess. Yeah. And, um, so we, through a series of different communications and things like that, ended up coming to this place to really check it out um and to see these huge open savanna pastures with these grand oaks and red tails flying everywhere and just this incredible gorgeous protected piece of landscape and i thought well, this is beautiful so like what what's actually happening here you know what is really happening what, what is the potential of this place and the more i learned about it we met um, a series of people that have been involved in these, the initial start of Stone Barns. Uh, I met Dan and, and David Barber and, and Laureen and got a sense of Dan's thinking in terms of cooking. And this was all, you know, pre-construction of Stone Barns. And, you know, right away, our, my first meeting with Dan was, was uh, that Shannon and I took, took the train out to the city um, to go to Blue Hill in the city and uh, Washington Square and, you know, brought him this basket of produce, um, these, you know, beautiful haircut verts and this nice tight little watermelon and, and some purple Peruvian potatoes and a few different things that we felt were pretty sweet, nice, really nice quality to show off what, what kind of stuff we were doing and give him a little bit of that and went into that basement restaurant which is just a wonderful place still and uh handed him this basket of product and he sat us down outside and um each course every course that came to us the the beans were on this hake and the, the watermelon was cut and seared in this tomato salad and everything we gave him he brought to us <laughs> and uh i thought this is my guy you know this is my guy and uh, so that's, you know, nearly 20 years that we've been working together um, on that kind of call and response back and forth. And I'd, I'd never worked really with a chef that was, that had that kind of response. It was, uh, you know, in, in some ways really modest and, and, and respectful, but also extremely, you know, he just showed off his skills in a way that was just really brilliant. And... Um, so that began what we were really going to do. And I think both of us, when we built the greenhouses here and we're working closer with Elliot and Barbara and in terms of design and handing that off and me taking on the, the design of this, this farm system, the, the, which has grown a little bit. Well, I, I'll tell you a little bit how that's grown. But when we started, we were 88 acres of this nonprofit inside, which what is a 1500 acre park preserve. And this little core of the, the stone barns, 49,000 square foot stone barn built in the 30s, that was fully restored 
to be an education space and restaurant for Blue Hill, we also took what was uh, a livestock operation, a Semmental breeding operation, and turned that into a highly diversified farm system. Uh, originally with um, about four acres of organic vegetables, a half acre of uh, greenhouse space, some tunnels, and the beginning of what would be uh, a living landscape, lots of uh, agroforestry and fruit production, uh, mill spray fruit production, that sort of thing. Um, that's now grown to about 12 acres of organic vegetables, still the half acre greenhouse, um, and what is effectively about 500 acres of open pasture and lay rotation systems for cattle, sheep, goats, pigs, chickens. So as a, as a nonprofit, what is the mission for Stone Barns? So the mission is pretty uh, simple at its core, which is just to connect people to food and agriculture, uh, to find a direct connection between food, agriculture, and health. Um, the, the mission statement has changed over the years, but the concept has always been the same and, and started from this really simple place of people are not connected enough to their food system. And the hypothesis is that the farther we are away from it, the harder it is for us to make clear decisions and for us to actually have the kind of confidence to be good food citizens and for us to actually make good ecological and social decisions because food is at the center of, of our society. And we just wanted to be able to have a place that we could show others that. And we started with children. You know, we started, even with my own children, um, we started um, with camps and family activities. And when the campus was still fairly small, we were doing lots of egg collections. And, you know, we were trying to not, and I think we were very successful at this, not being a zoo or a botanical garden or a museum. And, and what we were was really kind of hard for people to wrap their head around because, well, maybe not for a lot of the farmers that might be listening to this, when you invite your community to the farm, there's this incredible grounding relationship in the, in the realness and the modernness of the presence of, of being on a farm, um, which not nearly enough people get a chance to experience. And, and that's why it's a little bit confusing to name it, um, because it's not historic Williamsburg, and it's not the Met, and it's not a zoo. But there's something about the connectivity to it. Um, so the more we did this, the more people came to this place. The, the, it's obviously a beautiful place, so it's a draw. We're right 30 minutes north of Manhattan, so we have more than enough of a capacity to get people to come to this place and see it. And in my mind, really early on, I felt like it, there was just way too many people here. Mm. Um, and I think it, that's, that's about capacity of a landscape and what makes a landscape healthy nonetheless we're a mission-based organization and a place-based organization so it's 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 in our value set and in our responsibility to use the place to teach which is a great uh challenge in many ways to have um how do you create an experience that is personal and authentic enough for the right number of people so they're not just mobbed around each other and get a lesser experience. Right. 
you know, on a fall day like this, you could have, uh, you know, there could be thousands of people here on a weekend day. Um, and that's a beautiful thing, but it also really is hard to grasp what's happening. Um, when those numbers are a little bit smaller, actually people can eat together, they can interact with the farm in a, a closer way, they can speak to the farmers, they can speak to the chefs, they can in, engage in the, the eating and farming in a way that is more personal and is much more meaningful. And so uh, we've always had a member base that has been here that supports us because the other component of this is that we want people to come back return to this place regularly and make it part of their own, be part of the sort of commitment to this place is by staying with it, which is, you know, ultimately what I think happens with all farms is that we, we, we rely on the loyalty and commitment of our community. So if it's just a field trip, um, it's a great moment and it may have turned a light bulb on so I would never take away from those moments in, in which I've seen so many young people and, and, and families and adults alike have seen that light bulb go off when they realize, you know, what they haven't been looking at, what they haven't seen in the food system that gets them excited and maybe gets, takes them that next step. Um, but that's just a snapshot. So you really kind of have to have that reconnection, re-engagement. Re um, and over the years, again, we've done uh, camps and weekend programs and cooking classes and professional events, uh, entrepreneur intensives and fellowships and apprentice programming. We've had hundreds of apprentices that have come through Stone Barns over the years and studied in the greenhouse and in the fields and with our livestock team. and. Um, always, um, you know, in some ways it's bittersweet because you lose these great people, but they go out to do wonderful things. Um, and so, you know, like any good natural system in time, it matures and, and you all of a sudden realize what you have. And what we've found is which I think is probably the single most valuable thing that this organization has been able to do is that we've maintained these long-term dialogues between a kitchen and the farm and our membership and, and now more a lot more research and, and experimentation between each other because we, we allowed each other to take tremendous amounts of risks together back and forth, back and forth, not without lots of challenge, but always with commitment. And that was, that was the big thing, is that we, we, all, we were able to keep our game really high. Um, that's, an, that's, a, that's like a, such a huge privilege to be able to have a, this microenvironment where we can do that. Like we have, you know, at one time or another, you know, right now we have about 130 staff between kitchens and offices and farms and you know, the activities that are happening here, it's, it's a working community. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You're, you're suggesting, I never thought of this before, that a kind of uh, incredibly precious part of real community is commitment, that, that you need to have the group commit to the mission and to each other, and then something else happens. 
you have to have that commitment. It's the same way that like the community is required to be committed the same way. Like you always, you want your chef to be like, yeah, I'll take whatever you want. But also the same thing goes back. You could say, you know, the, there's always this kind of conversation among farmers and chefs where it's like, well, you know, as a chef, you might say, well, I don't, I don't dictate what the farmer grows. And the farmer might say, well, I don't, I don't really dictate what the chef cooks. Well, you know, at first you have to. I need this. This is what I've got. That happens. I just grew like a thousand lettuces for you and you only have like 10 tables. So <laughs> good luck. You, you can't, you can't navigate. That takes time to balance out. But once it's up there, once it's up there, you can't tell where one starts and the other begins. The creative process is, is fed and perpetuates you know, roughly eight, nine years, maybe it takes. I don't even know. I couldn't put a, put a finger on it, but it doesn't take one or two years. It takes a long time. It, you know, it takes multiple, it takes a lot of shedding of people. Like, um, we've been able to maintain this height with hundreds of farmers, hundreds, maybe thousands of chefs that have come through this place over the, the almost 20 years we've been doing this. And, Nonetheless, the more we look at it, regardless of we've seen some of these great people come and go, the pattern keeps showing itself. And, you know, we, we're all, we all learn through observation in it. In order for us to dispel any doubt that we can trust each other in this, it takes a lot of repetition and a lot of pattern and a lot of time. Especially if you're asking us to be, you know, committing to something like a seven-year rotation or a 10-year rotation. You know, yeah. Who gets to see a seven-year rotation run through its course? Well, farmers do. Hopefully the rest of their community does. You can talk all day about how rotations are long and ecologically minded and, and polycultural and interactive and, and contributive. But until you see it, until you see it again, and then you see it again, you I, can create, that's how the, the, the cuisine then follows that. I visited a farm last week. He was the fifth generation of his family who were dairy farmers in that region and four generations on that farm. And his sons have taken it over and he's looking to the day, perhaps, if they can survive as a, as a unit when his grandchildren will take over they'll be the seventh generation which had a resonance to it didn't it hmm. um, and to think of that kind of a, a long relationship with a particular place and so what you do doesn't need to have a one-year payback it could have a 20-year payback although still the farm has to survive for those 20 years there, that we have to find a way that we can as a community support the farms that we want to support, that, that we want to have be there for our children. And that gets to, the idea of that just kind of gets to this other part of what we do as an organization and, and a realization that I had some years into the nonprofit of this place. Like what, what is the agricultural aspect of this nonprofit? Because of course, at, at heart, you know, I want, to, I, I want the place to be productive, of course. Like, I want the plants to be healthy, I want the animals to be healthy, I want everything to be delicious. 
you know, that's coming off. And, and I wanted it to be valued by my community at the best value that it could be to support the work that we're doing. I want my team to be paid well. I want our systems to be able to be maintained at this certain level that costs, that takes time, that takes money. If it doesn't take product, it certainly takes time. And that's, that's part of developing something that is self-generating and self-renewing. And again, the, 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 the tremendous gratitude I have for the nonprofit as a whole and also responsibility that has come from this that I've recognized is that we have the privilege to maintain that height without having to marginally grow production. We can, our responsibility is to marginally grow accessible content. To, to, to show to where is that edge how do we take that risk when we get to a place where we're comfortable we take the risk for the next thing always i mean all farmers have to do that that's nothing different except that most farmers are taking a risk without the commitment of the rest of their community to accept that and it becomes a gamble more than actual risk and and that's just something that we can't afford in our world and, and it doesn't allow the concept of real organic to actually be perpetuated until we have good modeling for that sort of thing. Yeah. So I like to think that Stone Barns is becoming a, a, an, an environment to be able to model where the edge is and where the innovation can happen, not, not to show people what's next, but to show, to allow a place for people to come and sort of build that confidence as a consumer and as a chef and as a farmer and as a researcher, whatever, whatever angle they're, whatever stakeholder rule they come in at, they come into this place and, and my hope, the best out of this place is that they show and they're like, oh, I could actually do that. If they could stay here and do it with us for a while, they always get it. But if they just stop and see, it, it also does have a, a, some resonance. You know, <clears throat> it's interesting. So Stone Barnes is, um, got an, uh, economic cushion that many enterprises don't have and with it you're able to do things that many places don't but I was so impressed yesterday when I participated in your learning circles as the 120 some people who are connected to stone barns were broken into small groups and going from learning center to learning center and somebody was teaching what they do and it's this very very uh, beautiful sharing with a group of people who are riveted. And what I saw was 120 people becoming what I would call biologically literate. And, you know, I know that that's what we need to do as a society. We go to school and we learn what we learn. By and large, we do not learn how to be biologically literate about agriculture. And for us to thrive and be healthy and 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 maybe even be a working democracy i'm i'm beginning to see that it's getting bigger and bigger in terms of the impacts we need to figure out how to teach and learn biological literacy and i saw a pretty good model of it yesterday thanks i'm glad that you were here for that because the you know the there, again, there's a couple of tenants that sort of came into this a few years ago when, you know, pre-COVID even, when we were kind of at this place where we're like, all right, we've grown 
we've matured to this place as an organization. We have a team of people that are really excited about this stuff. The chefs and the farmers and the interaction that they're doing is really great. But then we have this, the rest of our staff still doesn't quite fully engage. They, they love the organization. They know what's happening. But isn't that just a, an example of the rest of our society? And some people get to experience these depths of, of maturation and everybody else is sort of supports that. No, that's, that's not the society I would love to live in. It's where we are and, and what we are dealing with. But if we really want to dream and imagine what we could do when a question comes up, which it did many, several years ago when we were doing some, uh, you know, retreat work and, and doing some you know, work as an organization to figure out what was next for us. And this question kept coming up. I shouldn't laugh because it's a really important question. Who's your audience? Who's your audience? And it was just a, everybody, everybody ends up being the audience, but what, what comes around, especially for a food system, but you got to pick one and all this. So I just came around. I, there was just this moment where I was just like, all right, first of all, where are the audience? Where are the audience? Let's start with that. And everything goes from there. If you feel like you're trying to figure out who the audience is and you're not included in that, then come in. If that's what, that to me was the thing that we were missing most. For a farmer to feel like they're not participating in what this incredible food is coming out of the kitchen or for this accounting uh, manager to not feel like what they're contributing to in our CSA model or something isn't just as valuable as the farmer themselves in this space. Like the reality is everybody's a contributor and we all deserve to be the audience of our own work. And it's just an inclusivity thing. It's just how do you get involved? It also has great benefits organizationally because the reality is when everybody's really on board, now it's not so subjective. Everybody's speaking from their heart and speaking from their work. They're not memorizing the elevator speech. Yes. They're, they're speaking about something that they love and they speak to it from their position. And I, I don't need a, a new farmer to talk about the complexity of the crop rotations over so many years. I want them to talk about what they just did. Talk about how interesting it is that they were working in the sweet potatoes this afternoon, you know? And, or to say that, um, that someone in the, the catering group just really recognized that this, this food that was coming out of the field, they'd never thought about the seasonality of this thing because they, they just do different stuff in them. It's just a way of relationship. And that was a big one. That, and that got us on this path of really making sure that, well, first of all, it gave us a minute to think about what it was that we were really doing that was really that special. Like, where are the sparks of interest? And what was interesting is that it was less about the naming of all the different vegetables and flowers and animals and more about the synergy of the interactions between everybody. Like, what happens as, as farmers, we all know that those moments when we get when we enter the back of the kitchen, 
and everybody's really dealing with that thing there or the chef or somebody from your community comes to the farm and gets out in the field with you and then there's like these revelations that happen they're micro it's like micro epiphanies that happen because we're together and we're around something like okay you're the expert but i just saw something and that does this thing that is we're just really at a loss for that kind of stuff in our in our world and to your point literacy bioliteracy is a is a good way to talk about that i think about too as a farmer as about my own maturity in nature mm. and mm. You know, i'll I, I always tell my team you know just because lots of people don't know about the moon or track the cosmos doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect on what's happening and so you have the opportunity to pay attention to some of these things watch how things grow like observe those little secrets and and feel how they change you you know those sort of things are important because what they're doing is they're giving you a relationship to nature and i think really that connects to food because i actually think that our society probably has this sort of 8-year-old relationship to nature mm -hmm. um yeah like we're we're kind of afraid of it we like to be in it it feels it's beautiful and fun but also we're not quite sure what happens when we touch it and often it feels like we might break it and so it takes a long time for me or you to be able to actually build the confidence in that relationship with soils and seasons and climate especially when people are saying well we really wrecked this climate it, it makes it feel like maybe you shouldn't touch it but in fact we know very well that the solution is in touching it properly and in touching it with intention and 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 care and and the more that we get into that understanding the more we'll mature in our food because you know the reality is like food is like the last vestige of our relationship to nature yeah so david grinspoon talked about uh i can't remember if he used the term or i did but childhood's end that mm -hmm. As a species, if we are going to evolve and and become uh, kind of tenders of the planet, which we need to do in order to survive, that um, a more advanced a more advanced society than ours would be uh, recognized by its minimal energy use instead of its large footprint. And and it came up because he was part of a group who was seeking to recognize intelligence in the universe. They were trying to connect with other species. And it was sort of a, a follow-up of Carl Sagan's efforts. And yeah. he said, we used to think <laughs> we were looking for a planet with a large um, energy footprint. That's what we thought would be the hallmark of an advanced species. And we've come to realize that that's a small blip in, this, in, in the species survival and either they, they end and that's the end of that species story, or they learn how to do an advanced culture with, with very little energy. Fred Kirschman always <laughs> reminds me of uh, Ernest Shusky's writing about the neocaloric yes. and, uh, <laughs> and just how short a moment of time that kind of energy use actually is, that we could actually sustain that kind of fossil energy as, as something we're doing. And then, you know, the, what happens after that? Yeah. Um, 
require it, it's sort of a make or break moment yeah right for us to actually regain that connection um but i i think that 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 kind of what it comes down to is real mutualism and that's how i look at agriculture and conservation and 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 leisure and like the, our relationship to parks and that sort of things like it, we have this sort of suburban landscaping thing and then we have conservation which is like protected and um pickled and and then we have agriculture which is extractive and you know the how we've dichotomized or, or trichotomized or however you want to say it was like broken it up into these segments of of this is how we treat the planet we either don't touch it or we beat it up or we just play on it <laughs> and and that's not a combination of those things and we can't find a way for those to interact but we we do see that we we see that now we see an ecosystem and an ecology ahead of us that um, requires a mutual interaction in order for us to be here we have to touch it and in fact that's the sort of beauty of agriculture is this uh um this engagement in, in, in active, activating nature with us in it and, and being able to take from it. But again, that requires that kind of maturation. It reminds me a little of uh, Bill Plotkin who, who writes all about you know, human relation to nature and that kind of thing. Like once you get to a certain level, you can actually have a personal relationship to it. I think you know, the farmers that are listening to this and the other naturalists and ecologists that are listening have that kind of thing. You're, you're paying it, you're out there. You're in your space. It, it feels you, you feel it. You know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about that, but to the extent that that, um, that is actually one of the best mutually beneficial things that can happen from farming, especially diversified organic farm systems, um, the action of having that and the capacity for other people to engage in that i think is, is it's just such extreme extremely important stuff like yesterday in our conversation we were talking a little bit about um, how important it is for you know because every how can everybody have access to organic food how can everybody have access to this stuff well that's a great question to ask it'll probably take a long time to change fully but what's, what's really important is that everybody has contact with that kind of mutual agriculture relationship. That whether that's in a community garden or just growing a plant, we're, it's getting beyond just like the human response, the, the human relationship, but getting connected to a place, getting connected to your food. Um, when you lose that connection to the value of all this other stuff it, it, you know we're, we're sort of left wanting yeah so let me ask a few impossible questions like the impossible question the impossible question <laughs> so where do we go from here um uh, as we're we're um trying to you know we're in a time of great change without a doubt and a time of great great, um, I f it feels like a time of great import for the future of our species. So one of the things that is fairly simple about organic farming is that uh, many of us believe that this is, this is uh, 
the most direct path towards greater health for humans is to eat good food. And that good food can only come from good agriculture. You know, I just had a long conversation with Elliot and Dan, and we were talking about Doritos and, and things like that. Well, we all know, just about everybody knows that Dorito isn't really very good for you. One of my concerns is that milk and, and beef and eggs and even berries and vegetables aren't necessarily what they once were. The most mm -hmm. basic foodstuffs are changing invisibly before our eyes. And unless you dove into the food system and saw how they were produced, this would just be a mis mysterious idea. So you have a great bioliteracy and you think about this a lot. What, what are your thoughts about, about where we go over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years? Well, I think that there's a few different parallel paths that will happen. I think, you know, there's this great, powerful thing at play um, where I wonder if it's just the destiny of us as another species, as the planet's evolution, is that I wish we could see another planet that did something like we're doing right now. We might be like, hey, remember when they did that? We're, we're right there. We just don't have that kind of context. But it's hard for me to think that we aren't in some natural cycle. As especially, like I said, the sort of, the sort of destiny of all of our science and research and the depth of how deep we can see into something is like, right in line with how much we're messing up the planet because we didn't see it. Yeah. Like there, it's right there. There's this thing where it's like, okay, we saw what we had done to this, we've done to this planet over the past 7,500 years, right? I guess just this feeling is like, I'm not at this to win anything, I guess. Like, I just don't want to waste my time resenting all the things that are happening in this world around me that I don't think are right. I want to just be doing something positive and I want to be able to motivate and, and encourage the people around me to also do that good. Whatever those things are, I, I want them to have hope and be able to generate goodness around them and, and, and in relation with the natural world that they're in. Just give it some respect and care and know that this isn't just for us to take everything. But like, in some ways, change your view of selfishness. Like it actually is in all of our benefits to be mutual, to be working in, in this thing and not to all of us be trying to win something, beat this thing. Yeah, well that, said. That we, would be great. We need to encourage each other to be more selfish. <laughs> yeah. in a profound way it would be fantastic yeah. if we really thought about what that means to because it's just like well then then it's obvious we got work to do we got great work to do and and um we don't need to sell any of it it's just it, it's it's just sort of a thing that we're doing with each other you know, we're not taking sides. There's the same way as looking at agriculture. Look at what we've done. We, 
we've made everything our enemy. We've, everything's a pest or a disease or an invasive thing. And, you know, we have that. And, and we set it up for ourselves because that's the kind of competition we like to be in. Mm. We're in competition with the, with the planet. And the, uh, the, the, the beauty of something like that, though, again, is that um, real competition would mean that we are together agreeing on something, mm. which we're not. Right. We're not really. And, you know... So I guess looking forward that we, we have a food system that can be grounded. And I always say that I think, you know, the best way for that to happen is to actually physically in, immerse yourself and be a part of it. And that, though, is not everybody has the choice to do that right now. Yeah. So there's other things. It's like we have all these conversations with these great scientists and ecologists and researchers that have like, it's just amazing data about carbon and the microbiome and and the relationship between soil health and animal health and plant health and, and human health and planetary health and consciousness and, and well-being and, and attitude and all these things that are associated to good health and good activity and well-being. You know, so the, the through line for this, you know, we've named it. How much more data do we need to, to agree to that? But the reality is since people don't have direct experience with where their food coming from, comes from or the way soil feels or smells or draws you to it or, or how an early morning feels in, in, in nature. And, you know, all of these things that we've, we've just lost, the night sky, the, the, those connective moments, we actually rely a lot more on graphs and charts and data. Um, so be it. So let's get some good data. Let's get some sh data out there that actually shows us that, you know, that the number of fledgling bobolinks that can come out of a grassland actually is directly related to the incredible flavor and quality of that grass-fed beef you just ate. Like, you need long arc connections between nature, between the nutrition of what and, and in, in many ways gives us a kind of reverence to that. So when the question comes up, are we supposed to eat beef? Um, or do we even need cows? Or is it bad? We can answer the question by saying, what service is this animal doing in our ecosystem? And Could you say that again? What service? What service does this animal do yeah. in nature? What does it do for us? And how are we respecting that? And how are we applying that? And I don't think it's a stretch personally to say that if we could answer that question, we might be a little more satisfied with eating beef. Because it does show, you know, in many ways that when the systems are connected to each other, and, and this is how I'm seeing it, is that when systems are richer and more diverse and have complex, mature systems that are being managed by groups of people, they, they are resilient, they are highly productive, they're highly nutritious, they bring all sorts of joy, they're inclusive, they produce uh, and generate their own kind of uh, uh, energy and fertilities. Um, yeah, why, 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 to me, that's the kind of thing I, I would like 
if everybody were to realize that more, but I do have a sense that people are just going to hang on the data more than the experience. Of it. Well, and there's, there's, there's this data and that data. I mean, what we see is that, tell me what you want to prove and I'll, I'll find some way of proving it. Right. I'm, I'm curious because what you just said is in such stark opposition to Secretary Vilsack's uh, attack on the farm to fork program in the EU. Yeah. And he said, if, if we allow the world to go this way, we will all starve to death. I mean, he put it in such terms. And what you just said is if we don't, if we don't follow that deep organic regenerative path, we're all going to starve to death. That's right. And I, I would ask why, why anyone thought it was a good idea to set us up into this situation in the first place in a kind of agricultural system that we knew was unsustainable. Um, we have a lot of, of re-education and re, uh, uh, reconnecting to do that we probably don't have enough time for. Yeah. To be honest. But the, to say that, again, I guess that just goes back to I, I'm immediately brought back to being 18 years old, or 17 years old, and, and listening to one of my first teachers, Bud Smith in Rhode Island, and who ran this large nursery that I worked at, Smith's. And um, all the old guys, all the old timers that, that ran this place, and they were, they, you know, multi generational. They grew vegetables and flowers and landscape plants. They did all, all the whole thing, you know, lots of open acreage and greenhouses, big, beautiful glass houses. And just, I was so proud to work there and to learn from them. Um, but also they were using lots of, you know, Peter's fertilizer and all that stuff. And, and so I kept asking, like, why, it seems like you, why wouldn't you use these natural methods or, you know, use fish or like, what do I know? But like, I grew up on a, an organic farm and, we were always making manure, uh, manure slurries and all sorts of different things and old school kind of stuff. And, um, and they were like, yeah, well, you know, those are the old days kids. Like we used to, we used to do that, but like, that's not how the future looks. Future's blue. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I thought, this is, this is pretty sad. And the reality was, you know, all those guys, died of brain aneurysms and, and MS and, mm. um, you know, exposure. Yeah. And, and we were spraying stuff in greenhouses and I've, I've taped my arms and I've taped my face and, and it, it's just no, no way to live. There's no way to eat. Yeah. And so, you know, all right, Vilsack, I mean, Maybe you're right, but is that the situation that we want to put ourselves in to not try? Like, you know, to, to fundamentally say um, that we'll all starve if we actually try to take care of this planet. I think yeah. that's pretty rough. Yeah, that is rough. <laughs> okay, we should probably head towards closure, but I, I want to say that the three things that kind of land for me as the theme of what we've been talking about is um, connection, commitment, and community. Three C's. 
And um, it seems like those things woven together create uh, a foundation for us to stand on. So before, before I say goodbye, do you have anything final that you'd like to say, Jack? Hmm. Well, I would just say that it's the, uh, the way we eat has a lot more to do um, with the health of this planet and ourselves than we probably think because we've not been told everything we should know. We've not been educated in a way that is holistic and, and mutual. And we, we have to all take it upon ourselves to, to look deeper into it and, and also just to find the joy in it and to know that a future that is really sustainable is one that is delicious and beautiful and full of joy for ourselves. Um, because if it isn't, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's not a bad way to judge what situations we're in. Um, whether it's when we're trying to navigate a diet or choose food at a restaurant or grow food in our own garden. Follow your heart. Yeah. All right. Jack Algier, thank you very much for talking today. Dave Chapman, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 82. Please join us next time when we'll be listening to a presentation that Elliot Coleman, Jack Algier, and Dave Chapman gave to a crowd at the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture last year. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org, and you'll get the benefits of being a real friend, including our upcoming book club with Dan Barber, so you can ask some of our favorite authors all of your questions. See you next time. Mm -hmm.